Good morning. Welcome again to Trinity Presbyterian Church. If we have not met, uh, my name is Ryan Hudson, and I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. It is a wonderful gift to be gathered in the presence of Almighty God this morning. In a world that is often plagued with disappointment, grief, and sorrow, it is a sweet reminder that our God still sits on his throne. This morning, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew. Um, So if you would, um, be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. And we find ourselves this morning um, continuing in this same dispute um, between Jesus and the Pharisees that we've been observing over the past few weeks. Two weeks ago... St. Matthew told us that Jesus delivered a man who was in in a desperate position. He was oppressed by demons. He was blind. But Jesus touched him so that he saw. His lips were mute, but Jesus caused him to speak. Yet when Jesus' healing showed his kindness and his power... The Jewish leaders brought accusations against him, accusing him of being in league with the devil. So Jesus replied with a warning and a diagnosis. First, he warned them that their accusations were blasphemy, and and these accusations put them in grave danger. If If they condemned their Savior... They cut themselves off from the grace of God. Where can they turn for truth and for grace if they curse the one who comes bringing them? Then last week, Mitchell led us through the diagnosis, the root of the Pharisees' problem. You see, hateful speech, slander, comes from a hateful heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, The mouth speaks, Jesus said. Now, our young saints in the room will recognize the pattern of these last several encounters because we've been looking at parallel passages in Mark's gospel on Wednesday night. We've seen each of these episodes of Jesus' ministry, a scandal, a challenge, and a response, where perceiving Jesus to do something scandalous, the Pharisees challenge his authority and he responds with a claim on his identity as the promised Messiah, the Son of God himself. He is the Lord. And here in Matthew, we've come in the last, we've come to the last of several such encounters in this particular list, spanning from chapters 11 through 12, and with each of these challenges, Jesus' assertion escalates. And in this last passage, Jesus doubles down with a strong rebuke against the Pharisees, saying, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And now as we turn to today's passage, we are still in the crosshairs of this same dispute. And the issue has become overtly Christological. 
But before we hear God's holy word together, we need to pray for God's help. So would you go to God in prayer with me? Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for the great love that you have for us through Jesus Christ and that you've poured out into our hearts by your Spirit. We thank you for the good news of the gospel this morning that you have revealed to us in your word. We know that your word is living and that it has the power to change us. We ask that by your Spirit, you will soften the hardness of our hearts, open our ears and our eyes, that we may hear what you teach and delight in your ways. In Jesus' glorious name, amen. Do you look with me now at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. This is God's word for us this morning. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, some, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. A familiar refrain. This phrase appears several times in the scriptures. We see it in Psalm 3.8. We see it in Revelation chapter 7. But its most notable use may be in the book of Jonah, its second chapter, where we read a beautiful prayer of the prophet. You know the story. 
Jonah, the obstinate prophet, finds himself hurled into an angry sea when he attempts to flee the Lord to avoid his assignment to proclaim God's word for Nineveh. He found himself in despair in the depths of the dark, strangled by seaweed, waves and billows passing over him and staring into the face of death. Yet by faith, in this beautiful prayer of, at the heart of Jonah's story, Jonah exclaims, salvation belongs to the Lord. For the Christian, the intimacy of prayer to call God our Father is beautiful in itself. Even more beautiful, though, is the Christian's prayer that recognizes the need to come to their Father's throne of grace and seek his inexhaustible provision, to rightly reverence our thrice holy God as he is all in all. This is what it means to say salvation belongs to the Lord. Hope eternal only belongs to God, and he shares it by his grace with only those, though they do not deserve it, who trust in him and his son Jesus for salvation. And that's the heart of Jesus' message to his listeners, the Pharisees and the crowds here in Matthew 12. So I want us to look at three movements, these three parts of Jesus' response to the, to the Pharisees' request for a sign. He gives the Pharisees and the crowd a warning. He gives them a parable, and then he gives them an invitation. Let's first take a look at his warning. By now, the Pharisees are clearly riled by Jesus' reprimanding response to their accusations. So Matthew says here that they answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Do you see the back and forth nature of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees in these chapters? We're still 14 chapters away from Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and the council, but can you see that the trial has already begun? Matthew has already told us that the Pharisees have conspired to destroy Jesus. And now, after Jesus' recent rebuke of the Pharisees, they're making their rebuttal. We wish to see a sign from you. In other words, what gives you authority to speak to us this way? Such a bold claim needs to be verified. If God has sent this man, surely God will be prepared to validate him. So we want to see a sign. I wonder if there's anyone here that's ever demanded a sign from Jesus. Anyone that's thought, even uttered the words, God, show me a sign. I just need a sign. You know, this is the perennial issue for every generation, but in today's evil and adulterous generation, in this age of rampant deconstruction, post-Christianity, the progressive church, people are demanding evidence. Show us a sign. But remember, the scribes and the Pharisees have been 
witnesses to many signs and wonders, to exorcisms and healings, and the origin of this very dispute, in fact, is a miracle. Which, by the way, brought accusations of satanic activity from the Pharisees. They had also seen or heard other reports that Jesus had healed lepers, healed the paralyzed, the blind, the lame, cast out demons. Jesus had offered plenty of signs, but they were never enough. And Jesus knows that nothing can convince the scribes and the Pharisees. They only seek more ammunition to use against him in their accusations. So he responds to them by saying, no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. He goes on to say, for just as Jonah was three Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. Now, immediately, we post-resurrection people identify the analogy, right? Christ is foreshadowing his own death, burial, and resurrection that will be the sign for all ages. But we need to turn back to the story of Jonah, to really get to the heart of what Jesus is saying. Remember that when God called Jonah, Jonah wanted wanted no part in proclaiming judgment in Nineveh because he suspected that the Assyrians would listen and repent and that God would spare them. So Jonah scrambled aboard a ship sailing toward the other end of the world, and God hurled a great storm at the boat and revealed to the sailors that Jonah was the cause of the storm so that they tossed him overboard. That would have been the end of Jonah, but God directed a great fish to swallow Jonah who remained alive in its dark, dank belly for three days while the fish swam toward Nineveh and Jonah learned his lesson. The fish spewed Jonah onto the dry land, and he quickly began walking toward Nineveh, where he preached, and as suspected, the people repented. This recapitulation of Jonah's life clarifies what the sign of Jonah is. You see, Jonah performs no signs. He simply spoke the word that God had given him. But the presence of Jonah in Nineveh is significant, for Jonah was as good as dead. He was expected to be dead and even considered dead for three days. But after three days, he showed himself alive in the presence of the people of Nineveh. And so the sign of Jonah will not be a miracle that resembles a miracle that Jonah performed, but Jonah himself is the sign. The very fact that Jonah was alive and preaching after spending three days in the belly of a huge fish was the sign that God was active in Nineveh. The sign consisted of Jonah himself. The man was the sign. And that's 
what Jesus is declaring now to the Pharisees. The sign that will lead Jesus' adversaries to believe will not be a sign that Jesus performs. The sign will be Jesus. Alive and visible three days after his death. But Jesus isn't Jonah. He's not simply like Jonah. He's the greater Jonah. Pastor and seminary professor Dan Doriani lists the ways that Christ is the greater Jonah. He writes, Jesus is the greater Jonah because while Jonah went to his enemies, whom he hated, Jesus went to his his people, whom he loved. Jonah came without preparation to a hostile people. Jesus came to the people of God after he had long prepared them to receive their Redeemer. Jonah declared impending judgment. Jesus preached the gospel. Jonah came with words Jesus came with words and deeds that verified them. Jonah was a man of God. Jesus is the son of God. Jonah preached reluctantly, hoping his audience would not repent. Jesus was willing to pay any price to impart God's God's grace to his people. What a wonder that the people of Nineveh repented at the message of a reluctant, angry Jonah. But the spiritual leaders of Israel refused a loving and compassionate Jesus. So Jesus' warning is this. Because the men of Nineveh repented at the sight of Jonah, a reluctant prophet, they will rise up in judgment against those who reject Jesus, the very Son of God. But friends, don't miss this. The people of Nineveh were a wicked and depraved people committing unspeakable acts before God. But praise God that he is the God of second chances. If he could save the people of Nineveh from their wicked ways, he can save me. He can save you. The good news is that God has sent Jesus to do what we could not do. He opens minds and draws people to himself. He's given us his word, and it is powerful. It's been changing people's lives, turning people's lives upside down since God gave it to us. And I can stand here before you and proclaim that because it's changed my life. What Jesus is concerned about here with the Pharisees, is that he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to recognize and acknowledge that the kingdom of God is right here in front of them, and they're in danger of missing it. So that's the warning. And now, just like the previous section, Jesus gives us another parable to elaborate on his response to the Pharisees. Now, we have to admit, this parable is a little difficult to interpret. But there are clues in Matthew's account that help us. Let's read it again. In verse 43, when the unclean spirit 
has gone out of a person. It passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Matthew's placed this sign, this parable rather, after the demand for a sign. And so perhaps because it illustrates the spiritual danger facing this generation, which we've read about in chapter 11, back in verse 16 and 19, we've read about this morning, we'll read in its climax in chapter 23, So while Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and calling them to repentance, he gives this story about the unclean spirit that goes out of a man. But he says, after finding nowhere to rest, the spirit decides to return to the man, to the house from which he came. And finding it swept and put in order, yet empty, the spirit brought seven other evil spirits to inhabit the house And the final state was worse than the first. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees who spend their lives sweeping up their house, spend their lives being dedicated to the achievement of holiness and righteousness. They think that they can be righteous on their own. In fact, many of their challenges toward Jesus have to do with them claiming to be better keepers of the law than he is. They've made a vocation out of keeping every letter of the law to the T. But they've never come to Jesus. They've yet to recognize him as he is, who he is, to trust in him. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe You've had a bad habit and you quit it. As Pastor Mitchell said last week, maybe you're trying to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You stand resting on your own righteousness, resting on your own performance, yet you haven't come to Jesus. So you don't receive the Holy Spirit, and therefore your clean, empty house makes room for the unclean spirits. Friends, what we need is a repentance of the heart, not merely a repentance of the flesh. This generation has seen and experienced the ministry of the very Son of God, but they must accept Jesus lest the unclean spirit take up permanent residence. So finally, Jesus extends an invitation by way of his next statement. Matthew reports this scene of Mary and Jesus' brothers without much explanation, but Mark uh, chapter 3 gives us a little bit more, tells us why they came. He says that when Jesus' family heard about what he had been doing, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. 
It's not a very nice picture of Jesus' family. But what else could they conclude? How could any sane man claim to be greater than the prophet Jonah? Or greater than King Solomon? Of course, none, unless he was the Son of God, the Messiah. There's been the concern, excuse me, that's been the concern of these chapters, chapter 11 and 12, all along from the beginning of chapter 11 to the end of chapter 12. Is Jesus really God's Messiah? Is he the King? Jesus was inviting the Pharisees, the crowds. He's inviting you. He's inviting me this morning to believe that he is who he says that he is. At this point, Jesus' own mother and brothers were not able to answer by saying yes. They thought he'd gone off the deep end. It's important to note that they did eventually believe on the Lord Jesus. Mary and his brothers appear along with the church. The early believers in Acts 1, where they're observed worshiping together, James emerges in time as the leader of the first council of the church in Acts 15. Yet the important issue now is not whether they believed. The question is whether you believe. Whether you will follow Jesus. For who are those who belong to Jesus' family? At the end of chapter 12, Matthew brings to his readers, as Michael Green summarizes, the importance of decision about Jesus to its climax. It's possible to be religious like the Pharisees and still not be a part of the kingdom of God. It's possible to be physically related to the Messiah and still not be a part of the kingdom of God. Religious practices and religious pedigree are utterly inadequate to bring anybody into the kingdom. There needs to be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and a determined decision to follow him. It's not those who were born into his natural family according to the flesh. It's those who have become his disciples. Those who have denied themselves, taken up their cross, and followed him. Pointing to his disciples, Jesus said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. What is the will of the Father? By now you should know the answer as well as I do. It's that people everywhere might repent of their sin and believe on Jesus as King and Savior. In the, in the immediate context of chapters 8 through 12, the will of God means to follow Jesus, to believe in him, to listen to him, to rest in him, and to acknowledge his authority. And the invitation for those who come to Jesus is that they're his family. What a glorious thought that we here this morning might be part of the family of God. I'll close with this.
as sinners, we're all born spiritually dead in our trespasses, unable to save ourselves. The natural state of man is depravity and rottenness. The Bible says that without God intervening, we are children of wrath by nature, destined for the condemnation that we are due for our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, can make us alive together with Christ by grace. To this, Paul writes these wonderful words of the gospel. Truly no sweeter words exist than for by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. This means that even though you may be lost and hopeless, unable to do anything to save yourself like Jonah at the bottom of the sea, God can save you and desires to do so. Not by anything you can do, but through what Christ has done on your behalf. Christ died on the cross to pay the sin debt of all who will call on his name to save them. Then he was raised from the dead to demonstrate that he is God and Savior. And in faith, we all who trust and hope in him will be raised again as well. Won't you do that today? Will you cease to trust yourself and instead entrust your life to Jesus. He is the only way to heaven, to being welcomed into the family of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Won't you arise and come to him? Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us in the depths of darkness and despair, but that you've rescued us by the power of your resurrected Son, and that we have hope, a sure hope, of eternally enjoying your presence. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.